Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 206 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I am speaking with Pete Quinones, the artist formerly known as Mance Raider. He is, of course, the host of the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, a great show that I highly recommend if you're not already a listener to it. A show on which, by my count, I think I've been a guest three times, so it was nice to have Pete on my show for a change. And today, the main thing we're talking about is a recently released documentary film that Pete was involved with the production of called The Monopoly on Violence. This documentary is a very well-made film that looks into the history of the state as an institution how it came to be, what it does, all of the problems it creates and exacerbates, and potential solutions and alternatives. This film features commentary from many leading lights in the kind of libertarian anarchist milieu, just to name a few. Tom Woods, David Friedman, Michael Humer, James C. Scott, Bob Murphy, Thaddeus Russell, Stephen Kinsella, Andrew Napolitano, and many, many more. So anyway, I won't waste a bunch more time talking about it. I'm just going to turn you over to my conversation with Pete about the film and just recommend that you all check out TheMonopolyOnViolence.com to find out more. Okay, so Pete, welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. It's great to be on, man. I've had you on my show a couple times, and um, I'm kind of excited to be on yours. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Um, I'm trying to remember, was it, is it a total of three times I've been on your podcast? I I want to say it's three times. I think the last time we were talking about um, the true story of the Spartans or something like that. Yeah, maybe? yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds right. Your, your episode 300. Yeah. So, but... Today, we want to uh, talk primarily not about your podcast, which everybody should check out and all that, of course, but about a a project of yours that just recently came out, I guess, what, like a couple of weeks ago, something like that? June 1st, when, when the riots were in full swing. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, perfect timing. Well, so the, the film is The Monopoly on Violence. And it's a documentary film. It's a little bit under two hours, I think, an hour and 45, something like that. And it really packs a heck of a lot of good information and and stuff that you're not likely to catch almost anywhere else in a similar venue. And first off, I just want to say I love the title, The Monopoly on Violence. I think it's it's so provocative because someone would see that or hear that and go, what in the, you know, unless someone is, is a political science major or something like that, 
they probably won't make the connection as to like, what is this? And so uh, it's, it's provocative and will make a lot of people intrigued. I think, did I hear you say on another show somewhere that that wasn't the original title for the movie? The original title of the movie is actually became the title of our production company, uh, Stateless. And we, we were headed to do the, I wasn't, but Chris and Robert, my, my partners of Stateless Productions were headed to Narcopulco to start in 2000, February, 2019 to start doing some of the interviews. And we showed up and Thaddeus Russell is there <laughs> with a crew of that are doing a, another documentary called Stateless. So once I once we found out that there was another movie going on with Stateless, and and that's not Thaddeus's production, he was brought in to help with the production um, on, on some things that um, Kim Kyland and uh, I can't remember. I'm gonna uh, I'm rem- I can't remember the gentleman's name, and he, and he's been on my show, I believe. Um, <laughs> but we found out that there was another documentary being called Stateless, so we were like, well, we got to change the title, and we just literally got into a Facebook uh, group chat and after about 10 minutes just said all right monopoly on violence i think it was going to be monopoly on force and then it was like no let's make it monopoly on violence i don't remember who like came up with it and put their foot down and said okay this is what we're going to do this one works perfectly but yeah once we switched it over to monopoly on violence i real i think we all realized how much better that was than stateless you know because stateless really doesn't make a a statement but, you know, people are like, oh, I don't know what the hell's going on there. But the monopoly on violence has two words in there that people are averse to. So, I, you know, I think that works. Yeah. And a lot of what the documentary does, at least in in the the first section in particular, is stuff that people like you and I and the sorts of people that, you know, we we follow in the alternative media and have on our podcast and that sort of thing, we all kind of just sort of take for granted and think about all the time, but things that the average, you know, for lack of a better term, the average kind of normie or whatever um, muggle, the, these are thoughts that they just are never exposed to or encouraged to think like basic things that even mainstream political science uh, scientists wouldn't disagree with such as what is the state? Well, it's a monopoly on violence and just, you know, those powerful things of pointing out the state, just what it is, you know, and then, and then sort of saying, all right, given the fact of what this thing is and what it really does, how could a halfway decent person be on board with this? So I think that's, that's one of the things that the film does, does very well. And it's, uh, it's, it's very well made from a technical point of view. You know, it's it's very like the audio and and video and editing and all that sort of stuff is, is very good. But um, can you tell us, how did you come to be involved with this project? Well, social media, as much as most I've come to believe that social media is just a sewer. Um, there were a couple local anarchists here in Atlanta that I've been to. I went to a meetup with them and had dinner with them. And we had never discussed anything. Just, hey, you know, every once in a while, get, get together and hang out. Well, one of them contacted me one day and said, I got a proposal for you. Can we meet for lunch? So. You know, we went out for lunch on a Sunday and everything. And he said, I have this idea for a documentary. And he had already like laid out, um, you know, d- done an outline of it and everything. And I was like, and I'm like, well, why me? And he's like, well, you're a podcaster and the people that we want to have in this, you've already, 
you've talked to most of them. So you can talk to them and get them, you know, get them on board with this. So I was like, no, that makes sense. And the first thing that popped into my mind was Mises University. I said, Mises University, we're going to have everyone, you know, half the people we want to interview are going to be there. So we immediately started planning for that. But it took about, I guess, from that time we started planning it out, we're looking at about six months to the first interview which was like an Archipulco 2019. But um, yeah, so yeah, I was just approached. I'm sorry, I forgot, I forgot the question. I tend to do that when I'm sober. I was approached. Chris said, I have this idea for doing a documentary. No one's ever done a documentary where you know, we've, you're actually talking about uh, narco-capitalism. But he said, but also we're going to talk about all faces of anarchism. So we're going to present Every one that, you know, we, we talk about Sterner, you know, ego, the egoist individual anarchism. And we talk about um, Proudhon and Kropotkin, you know, hard left anarchism. And we bring it up to Rothbard and we concentrate more on um, anarcho-capitalism than anything else. But yeah, I mean, I was just basically brought in because I could, I could get these people. Um, I could talk to these people about being interviewed and, Sorry, I keep wanting to go off and just talk about the documentary because I love it so much. But um, oh, we're yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to dig into to all sorts of aspects of it for sure. Yeah, um, your your like quote unquote official role as far as the production goes was was it executive producer? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I'm ex- I'm executive producer. I'm one I'm one of the producers, um, writer, and um, yeah, those are really the three things. And then when it came, to, I mean, I didn't physically edit it, but you know, I got sent. It was three hours long before we edited it down. So I said, you know, I said we got to take this out. We got to take this out. There was a section in there where I, with me, which just seemed a little self indulgent. I said, take that out and everything. So you know, it was this was way more about um, wanting this to be the best thing possible. And to be the best product we could put out there than any kind of self-indulgence or anything. That's why you only see me in it twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I think it's the sort of thing that you could, anyone could refer someone to who is not already some sort of anarchist or libertarian or whatever, but who is already, you know, somewhat well-read, like maybe knows a little bit of basics about things like like political science and history and economics, but you know, not an expert. Someone who's maybe read a few books and is is not completely illiterate on those things, but who's open minded, who you know is is really encountering some of these ideas for the first time. I think it's a great like one stop uh, shop that maybe people are not maybe I can guarantee people are would be more likely to look at watch a nice well made film than if you're like here read this 600 page book by Rothbard or whatever like that. I think it, it's a nice introduction, but that still has a lot of depth to it. And, you know, it, it packs a lot into, and like you already said, you know, I'm sure you had way more stuff that, that didn't make it into the final cut, but um, <laughs> you know, my hat's off to you for, for what you all were able to pack into a film that still comes in under, under two hours. Oh, we appreciate it. That was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of work and I really have to give Chris Kofer who, you know, he gets the directing and the editing credits on it. He was the one who decided how it was going to be laid out, what subjects we were going to, how one subject was going to go into the next and how it was going to flow. 
And he did that. And then I, he'd send it to me and I'd be like, all right, we need to cut this out. And every time I did it, I'm like, oh, cutting his ba- cutting parts of his baby apart and everything, you know? So, but um, yeah, he, he was okay with pretty much every cut that I suggested except one. And he won on that because he, you know, in the last three months before we released this, I mean, he was, this was night and day for him. So, um, yeah, he, he got, he's like, I I have to take director's privilege on the one on this one. (laughs) Well, can you give us like just the, the big picture sort of broad brush view of what were you guys trying to, to accomplish with the film and then also sort of link to how it's organized, how it's laid out and, and kind of like the narrative that you're trying to put together overall in big picture terms. Yeah. We wanted to present anarchism to the public. We wanted to make a documentary that somebody could share with a normie friend of theirs and it would make sense. It would, I mean, that was our goal. Our goal was when people think of anarchism, they think of somebody with a hammer breaking windows on an auto zone in Minneapolis. I mean, that's pretty much what the public thinks. And we wanted to change that perception. So the way it's laid out is, is three parts. The first one, it, the first part is just the history of the states. Uh, we wanted to show exactly the states that we have now, exactly how young that concept is and to show how they operate and they operate as a monopoly and monopolies, especially monopolies that don't have that as Jeff Dice says, right in the first 10 minutes of it, that are the judges of their own criminality. So if they do something criminal, they don't answer to somebody else. They answer to themselves, which is horrible. We see the old meme about the police investigated themselves and found they did nothing wrong. I mean, that's government. So the first part, we wanted to lay out what the state is or what they do. The second part, we really wanted to nail that down of, yeah, this is just, this can't stand. It's not a civilization. People talk about how you know, we live in a society, we live in a civilization, taxes are the prices we pay to live in a civilized society. Well, you got over 2 million people in jail and, you know, over half of them are in there for nonviolent crimes. So how is that civilization? How is civilization, um, somebody who's handcuffed laying on the ground and helpless being held down by two cops, a third one drops their knee into their neck until they can't breathe anymore. How is this civilization? And then the the most important part is what are the solutions? How do we, how can we make a better way? How can we have to be able to show people after we've completely decimated any argument for the state even existing, as Robert Higgs says, the, the state is too dangerous to exist. What are the solutions? What are the solutions to welfare? What are the solutions to security? What are the solutions to national defense? And one of the things we really wanted to do was to really make an argument for the free market, that the free market can solve any of these issues. And I think we did a, we did a good job of it. One of the things, I guess one of the criticisms that we've had so far is that there's just too much in there, that for an hour and 45 minutes and somebody watching it who really isn't that familiar with our 
you know, what we believe that there may be too much. And what I would say is that I think that we put enough things in there that would become brain worms that would be like, get somebody thinking about one specific thing and they go away with that, whether it be Max Borders talking about panarchy or, um, talking about alternative, uh, Peter Klein and Mark Thornton talking about alternatives to education. Um, I think that we really did a good job of addressing problems that every normie knows exists and giving a solution to it so that if people don't get the big picture of what we're talking about, they can walk away with asking questions about something that would be that they would see as a self-interest of their own. And hopefully they would go away and start investigating that more just like I did. I mean, I came, I became a libertarian. I became an anarchist because of money, because I understood what the fed was doing and that just led me down a path. So and I really think with an hour and 45 minute documentary on anarchism, that's all we can hope. And I mean, I've heard stories of people who've already shared it with normie friends and they're called they're reading anarcho-capitalist literature or reading anatomy of the state. And that's fantastic. But I understand, we also understand it's not going to be everybody. So I just wanted to put something out there to pique people, at least have one or two things in there that pique their interest and hopefully they go away investigating it. Yeah. And there's always the possibility of, I guess you could use a couple different metaphors. Uh, the planting the seed would be one. Another would be the time bomb, right? <laughs> Where you're, you're planting a, a mental time bomb in somebody of maybe cognitive dissonance or something like this. You know, sometimes, and I'm sure this has happened to you plenty of times. It's happened to me plenty of times in my intellectual development. Sometimes somebody will say something, uh, express an idea or a point of view or point out, you know, an issue or a contradiction to me. And at the time, at the time, I'm just like, this person is obviously wrong or obviously crazy or has some ulterior motive or is whatever. And sometimes it'll be months or even years later that I'll suddenly go, uh, something else will click and, you know, something else will happen or I'll be exposed to some other information and I'll go, oh, that person that I thought was a complete crazy or idiot or whatever they were completely right and and i was the dummy for for taking however long it took to realize that they were right so you know there's always the possibility of that personal experience in this recently is i mean i've been i read konkin years ago you know agoras primer new libertarian manifesto and it wasn't until the last six months that i see it as the most important readings that i've ever done as a libertarian and yeah, that's just, hey, I read those books years ago. I've been an agorist for going on 12 years now. And why haven't I been promoting it? And it's like, why haven't I been wholeheartedly um, embracing it and talking about it? And it's really only been probably three or four months now, really since COVID started, um, that, yeah, it was just something that that was put into my brain, you know, five, six years ago. And now it's just like, Boom. It's like, holy crap. That's the answer that to me at this point in time that I see that as the answer to everything that's happening. So, yeah, I mean, it's from personal experience. Yeah. Well, in the film, you've got 
a really impressive lineup of, of commentators. And obviously, you know, much of that is thanks to your contacts from all your podcasting and all, all the work you've done related to that. But just for the listeners who haven't yet had a chance to look at the film or anything like that, or haven't yet heard you talk about it on other podcasts. I mean, just to, to name a few, we've got Tom Woods, we've got Thaddeus Russell, we've got uh, Judge Napolitano, we've got a lot of the economists who are, you know, associated with the Mises Institute, people like uh, Mark Thornton, who's who's been on this. Actually, I was trying to trying to count how many of the people in the film have been on my <laughs> podcast as well. And I, and I don't do, you know, a huge amount of, of guest episodes, but, you know, I've Scott Horton is in there. He's been on my show. Thaddeus Russell was on my show a while ago. I had Mark Thornton on once a year or two ago. I forget exactly when, but anyway, just a great rundown. Even even got Ron Paul on there, um, Bob Murphy, Dave Smith, and then some people who are maybe a little bit outside of that kind of, you know, Ron Paul slash Mises circle, but who nonetheless, I think, are really interesting and important and under underknown in those circles, even though they're, they're a little bit different. They're not quite, you know, the, the typical, if there is such a thing, the typical kind of Austrian economics anarcho-capitalists like James C. Scott or Michael Humer, both of whom I, I really appreciated uh, their contributions to the documentary in particular. I've, I've been a, a big fan of both James C. Scott and Michael Humer for a long time, ever since I came across, you know, their writings and stuff probably around the time I started my podcast. So we're talking like six years ago or something like that, that I was tipped off to both of those guys. So yeah, just a, a really impressive group of commentators who are not 100%, all of them in lockstep with each other on everything, which is good. And who all have, you know, some different areas of emphasis and expertise. And, you know, there's, there's at least a, another dozen great commentators besides the names I, I tipped off. Those were just, you know, off the top of my head. So I'm not putting anyone else down who was in the film uh, by leaving them out on purpose. But anyway, yeah, so great job as, as far as that goes. Well, yeah, we wanted to have as many voices as possible. Um, thankfully, one of our co-producers, uh, we brought in three, three, and four, three or four other people in to help us on this, Vinnie Marshall, He's a videographer who lives out in San Francisco, and he's the one who was able to save us money for travel, which is that's when you're we found out when you're doing a documentary, especially if you can edit it and do it yourself. The travel was most expensive. Um, He was able to get Thaddeus because Thaddeus is in San Francisco. He was also able to get David Friedman. And that was important to us to get David Friedman in there because he was he is sort of a not opposite of people from the Mises Institute, but, you know, not down the line with the people from the Mises Institute. So people like that. um, I think that the president of the Mises Institute, Jeff Deist, is maybe the show stealer in the whole thing, because every time he's on the screen, he is making points that just absolutely destroy anything, any argument about the state being the best option for anything that you would bring up. And I think Ryan McMakin also did a great job. He's the editor at Mises.org. His his parts were just fantastic. And um, yeah, there was just a few of the people who ended up like, we had not had a okay from Judge Knapp 
We hadn't even asked him, but he teaches at Mises University every year. So I just went down to the office that he was using for the week. And I said, we're shooting a documentary. I want to ask you some questions about the founding. And uh, are you cool with that? And he just asked me one question. You know, is there going to be any any problem with, Are you? is this going to compete with Fox and my contract at Fox? And I said, no. And we got him. And I just, I can't wait to release like the bonus footage of the stuff that we didn't use from him because there was some great stuff. Him talking about the Articles of Confederation and talking about Waco. So yeah, it's um, just being able to have access to so many people with so many different ideas. Not even talking about Stefan Kinsella, who um, you know talks about the law and the form, how modern law came into um, into existence and really evolved. And then talking about how international law could be a basis for how anarchy could work at the local level. It's just it, when you when when you start when I start thinking about everyone who was in it and everything they said. It couldn't have been better. I mean, I know we wrote the questions so that we could um, we could guide them and everything, but we couldn't ask for better people to be in it because they really told the story. And I think anyone who watches it notices that my idea, it was that there was going to be a whole lot more narration. And when it came down to it and we started looking at what people were saying, we, we realized we weren't going to have to use an insane amount of narration for this because they're telling the story. Yeah, it must have been absolute murder figuring out what things to leave on the cutting room floor, given, you know, the quality of all the folks that you had in the film. I mean, I'm sure there must have just been so much great stuff, uh, so many brilliant points that you were like, you know, we we, we can't make this thing four hours, guys. <laughs> well, it, it's also material that we can use for future documentaries. Ah, so. it, are you already working on something yeah. else <laughs> yeah we already have we already have the next one planned out and um we're just nailing down the specifics right now of um who we want to be in it we already know who we want to narrate it i'm not telling anybody that because if we can if we can get this person to narrate it it, it would be pretty huge but he's gonna have to get paid so uh. um yeah we're gonna we're gonna need more money than we had we'll need a lot more money than we had for um for this one uh, to do this, to do the next one. Uh, there might be a lot more travel involved, but um, I think it's a subject that anyone who's been paying attention for the last three or four weeks uh, will be interested in. Right. Yeah. Oh, is it either Peter Coyote or Keith David? Those are my two favorite uh, uh, voiceover narrators for like documentaries and things. It's not either of them two, is it? As far as I know, this person has never actually done a documentary, but he does have a show on Netflix. So I will say that much. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, it's Joe Exotic. <laughs> that would be epic. <laughs> Maybe that's something he can get into now. You know, even from behind behind bars, he can do uh, voice voiceover work. So, <laughs> uh. well, let's talk about some of the things that you in the documentary take on as far as um, the, the myths, the problems, all that sort of thing. You go after some of the, the things that people like you and I, who've been in these sort of circles for a while are, you know, almost kind of tired of hearing about, but of course to the muggles, this is like brand new stuff that they think no one could possibly uh, have a counter argument to. But uh, let's just take the idea of the sort of related ideas of, the social contract and democracy as 
particularly for like the modern post-revolution, post-French revolution sort of state, that those two things are often trotted out as, you know, the, the main legitimizing. Once you get away from the divine right of kings and that sort of stuff, those are often the main legitimizing stories for the modern, you know, like democratic republic state. But in the documentary, obviously, you guys coming from an anarchist perspective, go after that pretty hard. So how would you describe sort of the short version of what's wrong with democracy and the social contract and all that? Well, we knew that we were going to have to take those two on and their democracy is just thrown around. I mean, it's it's a word that is almost like racism now where it's thrown around so much who knows what it even means anymore. And, you know, the social contract is just absurd on its face. When you think about it, even when I was a statist, I didn't, if you would have told me, Oh, there's a social contract where I, you owe this to me. And I'm like, I'd be like, get away from me. But we knew we had to have Michael humor on for both of those because Michael humor's book, the problem of political authority is probably the best book on either subject and there's no way you can argue against argue for the social contract or democracy after you read it so going after the social contract we just had to let michael talk and let him go over the fact that there's three versions of it and just dismantle each version and he really does a good job of showing how the arguments for the argument for the social contract is ridiculous. Democracy is the harder one. Um, you know, I mean, I can, I argue against the social contract and I just start throwing out legal terms like, you know, a uh, contract is two ways. You know, if, if I'm paying into something, I have to be able to get something in return and I don't even get that and I can prove it. But democracy is the harder one. And, you know, Michael is just one of those people who breaks it down really easy. And it's, it's so simple to destroy democracy because democracy is basically majority rule. So, you know, he, he talks about have five people being in a room and four people decide they're going to beat up the fifth guy. Well, what's wrong with that? If democracy is okay, if majority rule, then what's wrong with that? They don't have authorization in order to do it. Okay. So put um, uniforms on the four people. So the four people now have uniforms, we call them police officers, and they vote to beat up a fifth guy. Well, then how does that work? I mean, is is it good then? It's like, if, and, you know, the, there's also the other argument of if those four people can't vote to beat up or steal from the fifth guy, how do you or I have, how can we legitimately give power to somebody else? who's wearing a uniform so that they can do it for us. Well, if we don't have the right to do it, how can we give that right away to somebody else? And those are, you know, the arguments that humor makes. And I mean, that's, I really think it's just the easiest argument against democracy and people who would argue back and say, well, that's not how it works. I mean, they're just not being honest with themselves. And a lot of that cognitive dissonance is kicked in. Yeah. So much of it is, this, I'm not even sure quite the right word or metaphor to describe it, but this whole idea that just by changing the name of something, you fundamentally change the morality of what's being done. 
right? So, you know, if I have a boundary dispute with my neighbor and I decide to solve it by just taking preemptive violence against him, almost anybody would say that that's horrible and and immoral and criminal and what have you. But when a president or a prime minister does it to a neighboring state, then it's called foreign policy, right? Or when, when some guy prints up a counterfeit $20 bill, let's say, that's considered you know, a crime that apparently even might carry the death penalty these days. But when the Fed does it, it's called monetary policy. And, and so a lot of this is just like the, the smoke and mirrors and pageantry and all that that is it's designed it's the the magician doing something with one hand that's you know very flashy and whatever while the other hand does the picture pocket or what have you and to me democracy is just uh to a large extent it's it's almost like like a fake magic trick i mean b- because because that guy up there preaching is wearing a robe and it's a, he has a fancy costume he somehow has his words carry more weight than mine and it's the same thing with a cop it's like well he's wearing a costume he's he has a shiny badge he has a gun and he took an oath well how is that any different than where did that where did the priest get his authority how does this person get his authority that's why i never understand how atheists um can be pro-state because they can see through the illegitimacy of this pageantry over here and they, but they can't see that oh just because just because this person's wearing some kind of magical suit or something he somehow is above all of us and you know has the ability to kill us and not suffer any consequences for it it just doesn't it doesn't add up it, do, it doesn't add up when you look at it and it is very very religious i, I think it, it's a religion unto itself and it's i find it very hard to argue against that yeah, yeah, it's a cult. I mean, I'm someone who personally kind of, I don't know if the right word is became, but sort of realized I was an atheist at a pretty young age as a kid and much earlier than I, you know, became an anarchist. But I can remember when I was becoming an anarchist that in my own train of thought, my my atheism and the way of looking at things that led me to atheism, a lot of which simply had to do with skepticism of authority based on logical fallacies, uh, that I, I remember saying, well, how, how on earth could you be an atheist and not be an anarchist? I'm not saying that all anarchists have to be atheists. Uh, you know, I've, I've got some affection for like Christian anarchists and whatever, even though I don't believe in their theology, but the idea that one could be an atheist and still be a statist, yeah, it just strikes me as a case of very, very strong um, compartmentalization and just a willingness to have blatant cognitive dissonance, uh, dissonance going on and just you know ignore it. And I think that a- another subject that you all cover very well in the documentary is the answer to the fact that it seems like most atheists are like hardcore status simultaneously. The answer I think is pretty clearly that it's the quote unquote education system, right? The, the state provided schooling system, which is another one of those topics that you all uh, have some great coverage on and some great commentary on in the film. 
Well, we knew that we needed Thaddeus Russell for that because there's a, there are a lot of people out there who can talk about uh, Prussian schooling, the Prussian schooling system, um, the Prussian system, the design, where how the American system was just basically mirrored, how it mirrored that. And Thaddeus just lays it out perfectly. But he also, being at graduating from Ivy League, an Ivy League school, and being in academia at all the right schools, all the the schools that are considered to be the elites of the elites, and he just abandons that and says that this is just not the way that this is doing more damage to humans than anything else. So we needed him to talk about that. And I believe his section about 10 minutes in, 12 minutes in where he's talking about schooling in America is just, I think it just destroys it. If you're, if your heart's open to hearing it, I, I think it just destroys the argument. I could see that his whole section really causing a lot of um, screeching from people who the, Public schooling is I, I there's like three sacraments of the state in the United States, and one is public schooling, one is the military, um, and the other one is police. So it's like teachers, soldiers, and police, and you're not allowed to criticize any of them. They all have our best our our best intentions at heart and everything. So when you go after public schooling, it's gonna be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, but I think a great argument he also makes is that even public, even private schools, even homeschooling, that in many states and, uh, you know, especially from Department of Education standpoint, is they want to approve everything. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to homeschool my kid and everything. Well, they no, they want certain things to be taught. Private school is the same thing. I went to private school for high school. I mean, we were the environment was different. The education and the way they taught it was more conducive to learning, but what they taught was basically the same thing my friends who went to government school were learning. So, um, yeah, Thaddeus just nails it. I mean, I just, I, I thought that he was going to, he would be the perfect person for that. And, you know, we were lucky enough to nail him down and, um, yeah, he made it. He made it happen. I, I have to give it, give it all to him. He is one of those people who is perfect for a documentary. Speaks well, highly educated. Doesn't even have to think about it. It just flows. Yeah, and he's able to do it in a just such a calm, reasonable way, while saying something that is just so radical. I mean, where he's something that most mainstream people it would strike them as just insane and crazy to say that schools are basically a form of prison prison. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah. Yeah. And, but he's able to say it in, you know, he's, he's not like yelling it through a bullhorn, losing his mind or something like that. He's able, he's able to just be like very calm and, you know, reasonable and whatever. And with all, with all the education and credentials in the world behind him. But yeah. Oh, and another thing is totally, totally different topic. But another thing I wanted to make sure to mention is later on in the documentary where you're kind of looking at some different examples of, you know, anarchism in practice on, on a small scale and uh, potential solutions to some of these things and what have you. There's that segment where you talk a little bit about that area in Mexico. Can you say a little bit about where, where was that in Mexico where they have 
like a little bit of local anarchy going on and so far it's going okay? Well, it's Chiron, Mexico, and they just in the early 2000, 2010s, they got sick of the government, the political parties, and they drove them all out. They just said, you're, you're going to get out of here. They drove the cartels out and they just walled off the town and they said, and you have to get permission to go in. And if you're going in there to talk politics or start a political party, it's, they're not going to let you in. So what started out as what seems like very communal living, you know, wouldn't be, we wouldn't call it a narco capitalist. It'd probably be more like a narco syndicalist. But as we clearly show, in this section that um, was from another, a shorter documentary on Sharon that we saw and we contacted the filmmaker and he's the one talking in it, who uh, speaking English in it, it shows that now they are looking at commerce. They are like, you know, we need to get, we need to invite companies in here. We need to get business going and um, yeah, we need commerce. And that's very promising. And I know they had to, basically take the Mexican government to court to get their autonomy. And, you know, we don't, it sounds like you're begging for your liberty or something like that, but um, they are an autonomous zone and you know, they're doing good things because you never hear any, you never hear anything bad coming out of there. And the local governments and the, and the Mexican government will tell you, don't go near there. It's anarchy. If you go there, you get killed. But there's no reports. And there have been a bunch of Americans who've gone down there and um, you know, done some filming and checked it out and everything. And it's just a peaceful place that has gotten rid of politics, basically, and uh, decided to go to more of a, um, for lack of a better term, just sort of a clan system or not even a clan system, but just... Um, let's leave us alone. And if we need to have decisions made, we'll, you know, we'll come together and we'll figure out, we'll figure it out. But, you know, people can leave too. So, you know, it's, uh, I like it. I I like the idea a lot. I think it's promising. Um, I won't try to compare it to anything that's going on in Seattle right now, because I think it's completely different and it's too early to tell as far as what's going on up there. But uh, everything that's come out of Chiron, I've actually seen, I know like uh, Luke Rudkowski has gone into Chiron and says it's awesome. So it's a great place to visit. And um, I trust his uh, judgment a lot. So yeah, we wanted to present that and show that as, and, and from, and, you know, we've also learned since then that there's like, let's call them autonomous zones because that's what's in the zeitgeist right now. Um, they're all over Europe. So there's there are options there. And that's what it's something that, my, that Ryan McMakin said. He said, the freer we get, if we want freedom, we just have to have a lot of choice. We have to be able to choose what we want. And it's also something that Max Borders talks about in Panarchy where you can choose what government you want, what form of security you want, things like that. Someone who lives next door to you could be aligned to a, a different government or security agency than the than than you are. Everything and it's like, why can't we have that choice? So, yeah, that's what that, that's what Sharon says to me, and um, I look forward to learning a lot more about it as uh, more comes out. Yeah, me too. I'm intrigued. Before watching the film, I. I didn't- I was oblivious to this. This was the first time I had even heard of this. So yeah, it was very, definitely something I want to look up more about. Well, like me, you've been in kind of 
you know, the libertarian anarchist uh, milieu for a while. And so, you know, you've been exposed to tons of libertarian and anarchist ideas and perspectives and all that. But that said, I'm interested to know, was there anything that any of the commentators said or talked about in the film that either maybe surprised you or taught you something new or gave you a new perspective on something, maybe caused you to look a little differently either at the state or at anarchism or anything like that? Well, I think one that's standing out to a lot of people is I'll bring his name up again. Max Borders talking about panarchy. That's a, a lot of people when they hear the term panarchy, who've been around the movement for a while, think of, oh, you know, the state the state dissolves and then, you know, you'll have an anarcho-capitalist city here and you'll have an ANCOM, an anarcho-communist city over here and an anarcho-syndicalist city over here. But his idea of panarchy is is more practical, I think, and I mean, even could exist within the state structure and would seem almost more agorist to me that it would, if people had choice about protection agencies, stuff like that, the state would become obsolete. So Max talking about panarchy, you know, Ryan McMakin just basically talking about choice. Like I, like I had mentioned in talking about Chiron is that I know it sounds really simple, but it's not something I'd really considered before is that the more choices you have, the freer you are that simple little thing really stuck with me and it'd be something I won't forget. And just really seeing the, the passion that people have, the, the people who are presenting this, the people who we interviewed, they were as excited about it as us. And just being able to see that, yes, that this isn't, oh, I'm going to write books and I'm going to sell books. It's like, no, they have a desire to live in a free world, in a free society where the state doesn't hold that monopoly on force and violence over people. That was probably the most, what keeps me going is knowing that these, these are people who work in the system and are out there trying to do, some of them are working in the system in academia and trying to do everything they can to spread the message to young people, but that they're as on fire for having to, for lack of a better phrase, liberty in our lifetime. That's probably what I most took away from all this is that um, I'm not the only one who burns to get the state out of my life. Yeah, that's always a nice thing. It's the same thing that I experience, uh, you know, on maybe a smaller scale, but when I've gone to events like uh, Porkfest or the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest up in Michigan and those sorts of things where, you know, it is it is energizing and it is nice to be around cool people who don't think you're crazy for having these different ideas and these out of the mainstream ideas. It's nice to, I can remember, I think it was when I spoke at Porkfest, um, this was a while ago and my podcast was still only like a year old or something like that. And so I didn't have a huge following, but there were people there who, you know, had followed me or whatever, but I was just having a conversation with uh, 
somebody I, I met there about, I can't even remember what it was. I think it might've been either some particular uh, conspiracy theory, like having to do with the Kennedy assassination, or maybe it was having to do with the, the origins of the fed, you know, and, and like creature from Jekyll Island type stuff. And I'm just having a, having a conversation about these things that like normies would hear you talking about. And in their mind, there's no difference between that and, and Alex Jones basically, you know, <laughs> and, and some random dude walking by just happened to hear me mention whatever it was we were talking about. And he just jumps right in like, Oh yeah. Hey, have you read this book? Oh yeah. Yeah. Have you read this one? You know, that's sort of, it's just, you know, I'm sure this is how, like, I, I assume Trekkies or people like that, you know, subcultures, they must have felt before the internet when it made it easy to connect with every single person around the world that shared your interest or your hobby or your belief system or whatever, uh, when they would actually go to like a, a little convention or whatever like that, right? Where it's like, wow, good. I'm, I'm not crazy for wanting to wear my Spock ears all the time. Yeah. I mean, I live an hour and 15 minutes away from the Mises Institute. So I take in as many functions as they have there. And yeah, it's always the same. I just being around people who think like you, who um, believe and desire the same thing as you do. I've been to New Hampshire. I haven't been for Porkfest, but I've been for Liberty Forum and it was very much the same way. So yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't been to Liberty Forum. I've been to Porkfest and then I was at the um, the Free Coast Festival a couple of years. So uh, a couple of years ago, they asked me they asked me to speak at Liberty Forum. So I went and it was uh, it was a good time. It was a, had a lot of fun, met met some people that I'm still in contact with. So, yeah. Yeah. Great, great folks in uh, in Portsmouth for the Free Coast Festival. So if you ever get invited or whatever to go there, it's definitely worth checking out as well. Well. What do you think as far as did you hit the jackpot as far as the timing of when the film dropped? Because it came out June 1st, which I mean, between the the whole coronavirus fiasco and then the economy falling off a cliff and then, you know, the corporate elite getting bailed out yet again and then all the stuff following uh, the the George Floyd incident. I mean, it seems to me your timing couldn't have been better for when this thing came out. What are your thoughts on that? We had planned to have it out on May 31st, no matter what. We actually released it that day. And we realized that there was somehow the narration cut off at like an hour and 25 minutes in, and it wasn't there for the rest of the, rest of it so we had to pull it down and fix it real quick so we pulled it down and fixed it and put it back up and then we just announced it we just started blasting all over social media hey it's out um go to this link and everything like that now i i I will be honest the the version that's on YouTube right now, there are some audio issues as far as like some interviews are a little lower than others. We've fixed that because we're right now we're getting it ready for Amazon. So we have to fix all the audio problems or else they won't take it. They'll kick it back. So we had someone contact us and say, Hey, you know, there there are some audio issues as far as leveling and everything. I'm a professional put it in Dropbox, get it to me. We'll take care of it. So we have, we're doing, we're in the process of getting that done. Um, re-recording just a couple of the narration bits and everything so that we can, you know, everything's going to be perfect when it goes to Amazon. So what, what's on YouTube isn't perfect. Um, 
it's not it, to my ears. It's not perfect. Some, and I've only, there's only like 10 or 15 people who've actually caught on to the fact that there's some leveling issues um, there, but we just felt like we had to get it out at that time. At that point, um, June 1st, there's still things on fire in cities. Uh, there's hostility towards the police. People are taking over police stations. People are fighting against the police. And we just, you know, the movie poster <laughs> that we did before all of this even started is the police lined up with shields in front of the white house with a drone in the background and there's blood on the shields. And that was just, you know, it was like, could we do anything better? The intro you're, you're not six seconds into it and you see a line of police with shields. Well, that wasn't, that was made before all this started. So it was almost like prophetic that it would come out at this time because, and that's the reason why we put a version out there that we know needs, needs some tweaks and everything. Um, But I think people just ran to it. There was still, I think a, a combination of people still being locked down and, you know, just all the violence that was going on. It just seemed to be friggin' per- perfect timing and people wanted to see it. And I think that there's at times like this, when people are actually questioning state functions, it was just, it couldn't have been more perfect. I mean, it's just, you know, we're, we're just, or you're watching cities burn and unfortunately I'm smiling a little bit because I'm like, man, this couldn't have been better timing. You know, it's like, I want all this to stop. Please stop burning stuff down. But here, here's our documentary on why this is happening and, and, you know, why the state needs to be abolished. And it's all funny to me right now. Although, you know, there is, there are still problems going on out there. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Not to, not to celebrate any of the, you know, bad stuff that's happening or whatever, but at least one of the silver linings of disasters like this is that it creates an opportunity for people to at least a certain percentage of people are going to have their ears open to ideas they normally wouldn't even give a hearing to now this can this can be bad because of course it can also be an opportunity for i don't know communists right. or or nazis or whoever you know fill in the blank with with bad political ideas that'll make things worse it also gives them an opportunity too so it's it is good to have you know some high quality stuff from the good guys out there i will say that it's we released it on june 1st i think we're recording today is the 19th or the 20th and it has right now 54,612 views on YouTube. So when it was at, when it was at 20,000, I, I was texting Thaddeus Russell and I told him that. And he's like, are there even 20,000 ANCAPs, anarcho-capitalists out there? And I'm like, I don't think we're the only ones watching this, dude. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty <laughs> awesome. And especially considering that it's a hour and 45 minute long documentary too. It's like, it's not the same as just like a 10 minute rant that goes viral or something like that. Like it's something that I would assume even someone who maybe doesn't sit through the whole thing, I would imagine most of them are at least sitting through a good chunk of it because I don't think you would click on a video that's that long, you know, unless you're intending to really give it a a fair hearing. Yeah. And that's one of the, one of the reasons we 
are so eager to get it get it onto Amazon. Yeah, and and then the plan is to go next to Netflix. Is that right? Yeah, w- once you get it on Amazon, drive traffic to it. Um, you know, see all the traffic that's also on YouTube and everything. Point that out to people uh, to people at Netflix because Amazon is very open about taking documentaries. There, um, you know, Cody Wilson did a documentary on printing firearms. Half of it was printing firearms, half of it was Bitcoin, and they took it. Uh, so as long as you're not putting anything that's objectionable, uh, objectionable in there, and it's and it's a uh, quality, they they'll accept it. So, yeah, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, I had someone contact me the other day and tell me they're they're doing some work on a show on Netflix. So if we submit it to Netflix, we're going to try to keep it on Amazon for like a month, a month and a half to um, so that it can build some momentum and then submit it to see what the numbers are, submit it to Netflix with that. And then, you know, if there's any kind of pushback or any, if they balk on it and everything, maybe reach out to some people who have some stuff on Netflix now and see if they can help us uh, get it on there. Very, very cool. Well, I'll link to uh, the YouTube version in the show notes for sure. And uh, urge everybody to check out the film if they're not already part of the, of the awesome 50 whatever thousand who've done so. And uh, well, the website, the website is important. Okay. Um, it is the monopoly And what we have on there is a link to the video on YouTube. We have a free 720 download and we have the, a 4k download version of it, which is this, the 720 is free. The 4K is 10 bucks. Um, next to the 720P, we also have a donate button where you can donate cash. We also have some cryptocurrency addresses there, and everything. So if you want to take it for free and throw us, you know, throw us a couple bucks, you know, that would be appreciated. Um, and then we have our merchandise for. We have movie posters, and there's links on on the um, on that page to it, and also merchandise. We even have a um, a mask if people are wearing masks these days <laughs> nice. that have our cir- that have our circular um stateless productions logo on it so yeah so we have all that and everything we one thing i will say is we've made no money on this on this at all um we're, we're out of pocket on this and we don't plan we don't see how we're going to make any money on this because Netflix does, if they like a documentary, they will offer money for it to pay for it. And, you know, it's not a, you're not going to get rich, but it is a sizable, sizable sums that they're offering for documentaries. But we want to have total control of this. We think it's really important. Nothing like this has been done before. And we know that we're not going to make any money off of this. So if you want to donate, donate. If not, you know, not begging, just letting you know that, um, when you look at the, the quality of the production and everything, yeah, this was this was us doing it um, out of just this is a passion project for us. So, okay, well, I'll definitely link to the site and and encourage everybody to check it out. And uh, anything else? Obviously, the number one number one thing we're we're shoving everybody towards is the documentary. But anything else you want to plug while you're here? Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. Um, doing, doing some great episodes recently talking about everything that's going on ever since COVID-19 started and the riots, I've been doing my best to get people on to talk and comment about that. And um, 
it's the, the podcast has been doing really well lately. We're just trying to give people solutions and steer people towards liberty and show that the answer to all these problems is just more liberty. So yeah, free mammy on the wall podcast. Very cool. Well, Pete, it's been great talking to you. Thanks very much. And best of luck going forward with the film. Thanks a lot, man. I love your work, CJ. Thank you for having me on. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the dangerous history podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have, and you'd like to contribute to my work, There are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, And you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.